When I made it to my home place, I found triumph of the will. Where once lay a shining city, stood a fortress on a hill. This is Fortress on a Hill with Henry, Danny, Kagan, Giovanni, Shiloh, and Manisha. Welcome everyone to Fortress on a Hill a podcast about U.S. foreign policy, anti-imperialism, skepticism, and the American way of war. I'm Henry. Thank you for joining us today. With me is my my loving co-host, Giovanni. Dude, how you doing, man? Doing well, doing well. And we are here to talk to the esteemed Eugene Perrier from Breakthrough News. Eugene, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, man. Thank you guys for having me on. Very excited about it. So let me uh, give, give you a, give the folks here a bio real quick. Um, Eugene Perrier is a longtime journalist and community organizer currently based in New York City. As a high school student in Charlottesville, Virginia, Eugene organized a walkout when the war in Iraq began in 2003. He helped to manage a number of the large-scale demonstrations that took place against the continuing U.S. war and occupation of Iraq and Afghanistan. He was a crucial leader in the struggle to free the Jena Six in 2007, was a founder of the anti-gentrification group Justice First, as well as the Jobs Not Jails Coalition, the DC Ferguson Movement, and the uh, Stop Police Terror Project DC. Perrier is the author of the book Shackled and Chain, Mass Incarceration in Capitalist America, and has worked for four years as lead host of By Any Means Necessary, a public affairs radio program in Washington, D.C. He currently is a host at Breakthrough News, a social justice media project uh, based in New York. Um, Giovanni, please get us started, man. Eugene, how you doing? Glad you're here, man. Love that you're here. How are you feeling today? Man, I'm really appreciative of being here. I'm feeling good. You know, just starting off the week strong. It's a good way to start. Right on, right on. So let me tell you something, dude, right? The first time I saw you, mm. first time, both like, Cold Virginians and whatnot, right? So, first time I saw you was you used to come in um, on this program called uh, Breaking the Set. Yeah, that'd be Martin doing this program. And you used to like come in, do, do political commentary and whatnot. Right? There was times around election time, I think it was, right? Then, uh, I didn't see you again for a while. Then I saw you again. Then I, and I, I ran into your programs again when you used to host uh, By Any Means Necessary. And I started watching that and I was, uh, and, you know, I was faithful to, to like every day, you know, the podcast would come in, you know, on my podcast thing, you know, by any means necessary. And you still had a little catchphrase, you know, my son actually would imitate you because I was like having a part all the time, right? Um, I was having a call. He used to like the power, he's like shaping the world around you, right? He just, he just liked the little, the little phrase that you started out with. Yeah. Kind of broke my heart there when you left, when you were leaving, right? And there's Sean Blackman took over and Sean Blackman has been awesome, phenomenal with, with, the. Uh, no, by any means necessary, Jack and Lukeman, you know, great hosts, great hosts. And then you start a new project because at the time you say what you want to do. Then out of the blue, you came out with a new project and that is break new news. <laughs> so, um, and you buy, you say you start out organizing. Talk about, talk to us about your organizing days. First, can you, um, that phrase that you say that by, you know, by, by any means necessary, great world around us. Yep. Just something I said in like three years. I, I mean, you know, there was important too. So I would say, you know, never even saying attention. Um, just once or twice. But 
Yeah. Well, I'm still organizing, you know, certainly just in a different way and at a different level. But yeah, I mean, you know, I think like a lot of people in, you know, to, in the wake of the 9-11 attacks felt that we were on the wrong course in the United States in terms of the response, in terms of going into Afghanistan initially, of course, and then the buildup into the war in Iraq. And, you know, it just felt like if you are out here and you have an opinion, you know, to some degree, it is your duty to voice it and to see if you can find other people who are willing to come together with you. Or if not, like it's being done in your name. So how can you really complain about something being done in your name if you never said, like, I do not consent to this process? I just sort of stepped out kind of, you know, somewhat randomly in a sense, you know, with a handful of friends in my high school and others. And we started working and, you know, in the context of 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 learning more about the roots of the war in Afghanistan first and then Iraq and the economic interests that were tied to it, you know, it started to reveal different and varying things to me about our society overall, the more you start to read more, um, you know, which really brought me into context. So I won't go in for a whole long time, but I end up in Washington, D.C., where I, you know, lived for a number of years, you know, about 15 years, one year in Baltimore and then about three years in New York. Um, but in D.C. really being the core, as you heard in my bio of a lot of that, uh, you know, it's an interesting place because since it's the nation's capital, you have both like the hyperlocal national issues and international issues all kind of happening in one place at one time which means there's a lot of political things happening. But I also think it's an, a unique opportunity to sort of build those bridges between, you know, the war economy and the deeper problems of this country. So it led me to a lot of different things from community violence issues to working around workers' rights to working with, you know, those who are coming back from prison around reentry issues to also at the same time, you know, trying to build and to link this idea of a foreign policy for the United States government that is, you know, not warlike, exploitative and, and you know, really draining the the life out of people on both sides of the conflict. So, you know, it was, you know, the things we did there and the things that we continue to do, I, I think that's, you know, really the most critical thing for me in terms of my organizing space is not just to be in any one issue, but to try to be a bridge between a number of issues and raise a critique. Of, it's not just one thing is bad, but like when you start to see how they're all interconnected, like there's a systems problem here. Um, and that was something I always tried to bring to my organizing and, and, and really, you know, bring to the understanding of how people see all of these different pieces that are often put at you as, you know, silos. Definitely the, uh, the interconnectedness, the linkage, one thing affects the other. Uh, that's definitely, that's definitely something to look into and, and something to, um, to help people put a connected docs, you know, because too often people can just be tunnel visual and, and in their own silos and, and can really, you know, doesn't really see how things are interconnected with each other. Um, how old were you when, when you uh, organized that walkout? Uh, ooh, 15, 16? I can't remember exactly, but I think I was 16, actually, now that I'm thinking about it. Or just about. Really? I think 16, for a couple months. Wow. Man, I was in the military during that time. <laughs> and we were actually watching, you know, the, the run-up to it, all the narrative coming up to it, and Colin Powell with little... Uh, Bell at the UN and, you know, and all, you know, and George Bush, you know, you're, you're with us or against us. And, um, do you recall, like, it was like supposed to be like the largest protest in, in recent U.S. history before the war started? Yeah, I, I recall. I mean, I think the largest one was pro in the U.S. was maybe January 18th of 2003. The largest one in the world was definitely February 15th of 2003 in London which was also big. It was maybe like 750,000 people in New York, but I, I feel like it's, 
I don't know, one of those two in the early part of 2003, which, you know, is really the high tide because, you know, Bush had tried to push the country into war in the fall of 2002, you know, in the wake of the Afghanistan peace, the axis of evil comes out. But, you know, he couldn't really get it off the ground because that's actually when the first, you know, real opposition started in the fall of 2002. And so it was like the regrouped effort, as you're mentioning, um, to try to double down on the case with the complicity of the media. I mean, I think that's one thing that people really forget. I mean, especially now because the Internet, which obviously has good and bad sides, you know, one of the good sides of the Internet is it's the ability to get information that is outside of just the traditional narrative is significantly easier to get a hold of than then, as I think we all know. And, you know, the New York Times, CBS, NBC, I mean, they were all basically carrying one pro-war narratives. I, I'll never forget Tom Brokaw on NBC News, and he was talking about, you know, how Saddam definitely had these chemical weapons. Um, and, you know, they, you knew you had them because he had these aluminum tubes. And then it was like, you know, we have evidence that they have these aluminum tubes, but the evidence, because they had no pictures, no nothing, was like a, a pencil drawing rendering of something it looked like you could get from Lowe's. And it's just like, I mean, you would think that like NBC News would have been like, I mean, come on, y'all, like, this is really what you're coming with, like, or ridiculed it, but they were just kind of reporting it neutrally um, that this is happening. And so I just say that to say, you know, I think that's what gave the protest at that time, you know, a great sense of urgency because the protest, and th I think this is still true about protests. In a way, protest is really mass education mm -hmm. because you're going out there with a the message, you're trying to get people to notice you so they can hear your message. So you're really trying to educate people about something. So in, in that context, the protest became, you know, I think an urgent vehicle to like get out the message about yeah. what was actually happening related to these things. And, you know, they used to carry the rallies live on C-SPAN. Um, mm. so what's C-SPAN going to cover on a Saturday, right? And I can tell you after every big rally, one of, you would get so many letters from people all around the country who had seen this and were like 100% in agreement with you. One place you'd always get a lot from were prisons, interestingly enough. Uh, but really all across the country and people writing in. And so you can see there is this, this deep outpouring that was happening. And so, yeah, I do remember it. I remember it well. I remember that early 2003 period. And then, you know, obviously Bush goes to war um, and things sort of dipped down a little bit at that moment after the first couple of days, but then came back really with a vengeance after the elections in 2004. And in 2005 was another big year for the anti-war movement and the answer coalition that falls September 24th, we had 350,000 people surrounding the White House, um, you know, against the war, total gridlock, shut down downtown DC. So, um, you know, that was another one. So anyway, yeah, I remember it well. I remember mainstream media, for example, you have uh, Donahue questioning that, and he had also Chris Matthews, right? Chris Matthews from Harwell. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He was initially questioning it as well and, and attacking it. Then came uh, Colin Powell, for example, Colin Powell came to the UN, he had his little, his little um, presentation, little vows and everything. Uh, Don, you got fired or his, his show got canceled. And, and uh, um, Chris Matthews did a 180. I remember, and I remember specifically Chris Matthews saying, now the time of debate is over. Now it's time to support our president. <laughs> and, then, and then after that, like you said, like, I don't remember much about, uh, I remember those protests, but I remember after those with Colin Powell and everything and, and just descending the mass media just, just came in lockstep with the Bush administration, right? Kyle, it seems like everything started dying down and you started seeing all these messages of support to troops 
And, you know, you start seeing uh, commercials about, about troops coming in and uh, getting airports and people just stopping what they're doing, clapping at the troops, you know, and, and you see all this, you know, the commercials just start getting high gear, selling, you know, the sell of this war. And then it seems like people just got kind of numb after that. People just, the same just kind of fell after that. Uh, I honestly remember the same way I did. Yeah, I mean, I think after they immediately went to war, definitely things fell down because it felt like the anti-war movement had failed. I mean, I think the thing that sort of ticked anti-war sentiment back up again was the fact that they didn't really defeat the people of Iraq. Mm-hmm. And that was not immediately clear because they took Baghdad so quickly. Um, and it seemed like the Iraqi military just totally collapsed. But I think 2004 especially, which obviously was an election year, and both candidates were aggressively promoting the war. A lot of people forget John Kerry was the first person to propose the surge. He was saying, let's send 90,000 more troops when Bush was not actually proposing that yet. Uh, but then subsequently came on to it. And everything was around this issue of patriotism. You know, Bush, of course, don't switch horses during the war. But I do think like, you know, the impact of the Battle of Fallujah and different things like that did start to change the consciousness a bit. Not so much in 2004, but I do think that's, you know, why in the fall of 2005, anti-war sentiment started to pick back up. And then was the theme of the Democrats, camp- Democrats campaign for the midterms in 2006, I think specifically because um, the issue Mosul, I think the first battle of Mosul had happened then um, and hung those Blackwater guys from the bridge. I think that's where that was. Um, I remember just before Thanksgiving Day in 2004, a guy who lived on my street was shot in the back. Mm. Um, and that had a big impact on the city. It was the front page of the newspaper, um, mm. shot and killed. I think that that's maybe an underrated aspect of the sort of re-emergence perhaps of anti-war sentiment was the resistance of Iraqi people that started to make it clear to people like, whoa, this is actually like pretty serious because a lot of people are dying with their ability to fight and, and stand their ground. Yeah. Yet the revisioning, the revisionists, revisioning of the history continues because I don't know if you remember the last, you know, this, this past Super Bowl just now when they had the image of, of, of Pat Tillman, um, you know, it's American hero and stuff. And I was actually for Benny when he went through threat to training and it was, it was a big deal. It was a big deal. He went to training and it was like the, uh, you know, the media was there taking photos of everything he did and all the obstacle course that he was doing. It was just so, such a big deal. Um, and, uh, but he stopped, he stopped being marketable when he started questioning his, uh, the war in Afghanistan, you know? Um, and then he died. And now that he, now that, he, now that he's dead, you know, they can, pretty much use his image, you know, any way they want to manipulate his image, just like just saw recently in the Super Bowl. Yeah, it's totally fake. As, you know, Chuck D said, most of my heroes don't appear on no stamp, you know, in the early public enemy days. And most of those people are now on stamps. You know, the one of the most important things, I think, for the sort of propaganda of empire is they have to find a way to co-opt anything, potentially counter their main agenda by you know, in some way to, to sort of blunt the impact of getting people to question by embracing figures. You know, you think about Muhammad Ali, you think about another person who, you know, has a great anti-war history. And it's sort of like, you have to find some way to make it seem like it's not that against this sort of broader piece. And I think Pat Tillman is like a super egregious example of that. I, you know, I, and honestly, I think Colin Kaepernick is too, because most people like just leave out the part of the story where the reason he was kneeling is because he spoke to a veteran on his team who, you know, did not necessarily have the same views about that. And he had been pilloried for sitting down. And he said, what do you think the most respectful way is for me to offer a protest, um, you know, while also not offending people who want to celebrate the national anthem? 
And this guy was like, I think you should take a knee. So, I mean, like, that's, I think, a, a major story that gets totally left out about how it came together and how it was perceived and how it was portrayed. And I think Pat Tillman, who, you know, was openly questioning the war. I mean, this information is widely out there. I think his his image and likeness has been tremendously abused um, over the years in a way that I you you have to, to some degree blame the mainstream media because it's such a glaring error over so many times. So many people, politicians, mainstream media, the military itself um, have used this without any real major public you know attack on those institutions um, you know for that. And so I think that's just you know another interesting factor in it. But I do think that it speaks to a broader phenomenon. Um, of how, you know, quote unquote propaganda uh, is is really working in terms of on us is that, you know, even figures that are, it, it, there's no way when you actually look at what they're saying that they could be used for the thing that they are, um, but finding ways to co-opt them in different pieces and present them in ways outside of their context, um, I think is a big part of blunting mass dissent by not allowing sort of dissenting cultural figures to hold their own ground as dissenting cultural figures. You have to way, find a way to bring them inside the tent. I'm really curious to get your thoughts about this uh, rally that uh, happened in D.C. a few weekends ago, the Rage Against the War Machine rally. Um, you know, the, the, I know some of the some of the anti-war circles that I that I move in, you know, the libertarians and stuff, you know, really came out for this particular thing. And when different people were asked critically about are you okay with x person still being here um most of them said if it was my rally i wouldn't probably wouldn't invite them but that doesn't mean i'm not going to go i'm i'm curious about about your thoughts about that and about the the distance that some organizations chose to have from the rally do you think that it it, it um that that, th that kind of thing is actually necessary um, and there was also that uh, little clip from Rachel Maddow that was this this little preening thing that they made for MSNBC where it was, I think it was about two minutes long. They focused on the Russia flags. They focused on anybody in the crowd that they could say something nasty about, but for two minutes just entirely lied about what the actual substance of the rally was. Um, I'm just, I'm curious about your thoughts. Well, yeah, Rachel Maddow for sure, you know, was milking that for absolute maximum war propaganda that we certainly know about that. And I mean, you know, I'm sure they were sort of lying in wait, but I think to some degree, you know, you make yourself, you make it easier to caricature yourself with sort of exactly what you're saying. Like, I think to some degree of a large number of participants are like, if I did this, I wouldn't invite some people. I think to some degree that shows why they shouldn't be invited, you know? And I think that the, why, the reason why a lot of people kept distance from it is is exactly that, that it seemed like there was a total lack of care to any understanding of what some people are bringing to the table. I mean, you know, from my point of view, if, if Matthew Heinbach, you know, a, a Nazi, an open one, feels comfortable at a place, you really got to start asking yourself, has the message been too distorted here uh, uh, in a way that a person like that would feel comfortable or feel like people would want to associate them at an event like that? So I think that's the biggest problem with it is I think there were too many uh, ulterior motives and substantive agendas that, you know, were looking to use the issue of, I think, you know, anger and rage that people have against the war machine really to push their own agenda in terms of a particular set of politics and then blaming other people when they didn't want to be associated with politics they found to be odious or, or, or negative or whatever it may be. And I, I, that's generally my feeling about it. And I think that overall, um, I think people were right to take some distance from it. I mean, I didn't say anything publicly against it, but I definitely didn't go and I didn't encourage anyone to go 
because from my point of view, some of the people who were there, um, whatever points they may have made that may have been similar to points that I have made, I felt were not actually there to represent in a true way the need to go against the military industrial complex. But, you know, that's the name of the game. I mean, uh, many people are going to have different ways of approaching it and going after it. Um, and I think that's also part of like the battle of ideas we're in sometimes is that we don't all agree. And while some people say, oh, well, these may be two separate things, well, perhaps it's two competing ways of approaching the same issue, um, you know, asking us to have a greater sort of, you know, political choice about how we want to view and frame and approach the issue. So that's how I would I would look at. Scott Horton from Antiwar.com has this great saying, um, and he actually he actually spoke at the at the rally. But he talks about that in, in terms of, and it's, I don't think it's just specifically any war stuff, but all types of politics that you have to attack the left from the left and the right from the right, because you have to understand what their skin in the game is. You have to understand who you're talking to and whether or not the same way that you would approach something, like you said, about two different ways to come at it. Read the list of everybody that was coming as like, you know, I'm, I'm not going to. I'm not going to connect with this this at all, and I understand why people are taking uh, that extra space. But at the same time, that and I and I don't mean for some of the nastier elements, but I mean uh, more of more of like the you know the libertarian crowd that you know they have you know really good decent politics, and that it doesn't take very many people to be in that. And like you said, is that the, the seeing these people connected equals a distorted message that doesn't say the same thing. Like you said. If it's appealing to these guys and they're openly fascists, how can I say that I'm connected with that message? Yeah, I kind of took a different approach to it. Um, and I heard, I heard different concerns from people, but my, my, my approach was we're like, we're, we're a year into this thing, right? And things keep escalating, keep escalating in, in Ukraine. Uh, when the brickmanship to, you know, towards things spilling over into, you know, into, you know, world war and, and nuclear war, et cetera. Right. And there really hasn't been nothing really impactful in the last, this last year, you know, compared to what you were saying, uh, Eugene with the Iraq war at the beginning, you know, at the beginning, there was people out there in the beginning out there, but this one, right, this, this conflict and the conflict before this one, one in Syria had kind of, kind of, uh, uh set this motion of, of paralysis and and the American, you know, liberal American left anti-war, right? Where it kind of set in motion this confusion and it started, it kind of set in motion people just laundering, just repeating the same language that, that the national security state empire is using. Uh, and it seemed like, it seemed like this conflict and the one before that, the, the dirty war in, in Syria. It's been marketed towards a, a particular audience, right? Like I said, audience that tends to be more left-wise, uh, more liberal, etc. And when this actually came out, my my uh, my first approach was this, right? It's the first attempt uh, trying to be made to you know to bring out awareness, to bring out some type of public resistance to it, and uh, and I'm seeing this, I'm seeing this great effort to railroad it. So right there, right there, you know, uh, it was kind of disappointing to see, you know, it was a, it was an opportunity, it was an attempt, but you know, uh, if you don't show up, you can't influence. That was, that was my, that was my thought. That was my, my, my particular thought, you know, there, I did have, I do have critique, critique to the, uh, to the actual event, you know, one, one critique being that most of the people that were, that were on stage, right, were mostly 
you know, personalities, YouTube personalities. We got big just it's proper, right? Because you know, they brought people like you, know, you go back to the Vietnam War, you have people like Jane Fonda, you have personalities, you know, drawing people, drawing crowds, you know, but what I saw in the list of speakers, most of them, uh, or a great majority of them being uh, YouTube personality, not, not so much organizers and stuff. But uh, but I think it was an attempt and and this attempt, uh, it seems like it was intentionally railroaded and the people and the different uh, articles and that I was reading of people, you know, trying to discourage people from going had nothing to do with the issue. It was mostly about the personalities, somebody that, that, that he agreed with the one not, uh, but it wasn't, it wasn't attacking the issue at hand. So the issue at hand, which is the, you know, to stop the war in Iraq, in, in, in Ukraine and, you know, and, and deescalate wasn't priority. The priority was other things, you know, that's what, that's the way I took it. Well, I. I guess I don't agree. I mean, I think I think if you put yourself out there and you say, here's my here's my rally, here's my agenda, and you say, I want people to attend. Some people who don't want to attend are going to say, well, this is why I don't want to attend. Um, but I think that many of the people themselves were bringing these issues very much to the forefront in everything they do and everything they say. So if you say that I have a certain value that this person seems to be contradicting at all times, and I don't want to stand next to that person because of that value, I mean... People are perfectly happy to disagree with that, but I think that's actually legitimate. I, and I think especially, and, and, you know, I think when we're talking about coalition building, you know, the question a lot of times is what are the actual issues of the people in the coalition? And I think that's why coalitions are not always, you know, the same size or the same group of people. So I'll just, I, I guess what I'd say about that is I think that to some degree, you know, when you're talking about how you're building a resistance to the war machine, to imperialism. You know, you have to really talk about what is going to be, you know, the basis in society in, in which to build that. And I definitely don't think that the basis in society to build an opposition to, you know, the war machine in America is going to be contained when people are saying things like, you know, the Civil War was wrong, no matter how you feel about slavery. I mean, there were more pro-slavery comments coming from people who are coming there. I and mean, like I said, white supremacists and others feel comfortable there. I mean, quite frankly, you know, a number of the speeches brought up actually the quote unquote side issues that they said were side issues. So I, I sort of feel, to be honest with you, that a lot of the pushback against the criticism was disingenuous and that, you know, people are always going to voice different reasons for why they're going to do things. And you have to sort of go forward on your agenda. But it actually really felt like the fight in and of itself over the so-called side issues that people were raising was actually the point of why a lot of people wanted to organize the rally. And so from my point of view, I, I don't know if it was, I, not I don't know, I don't think it was an effective way to message or, or go after the issue. But I guess, you know, this is the point of there being a divide on the issue. I just feel that it was a, a, a distraction from what really needs to be happening in terms of building this. And I think that it did more to elevate division than unity and almost the entire lead up and way the event is message and in the response to the event itself um, and and what some of the attendees and who they were and what they said. Yeah, you saw also a couple of days after that event, um, there was another event in Washington, which was more of a, a pro-Ukraine, pro-war uh, event. And they are really disseminated in the media. <laughs> they have pretty much pushed in the media that, you know, the, the, the rally that happened right after. Yeah, I think this is the one with Samantha Power. Yeah, the one Samantha Power came out. Yeah, so that so that really got pushed in the in the mainstream media. You know, they have uh, this young woman um, talking that 
she had to leave and she's studying. I think she's going to school in Virginia, but she can't wait to get back home, et, et cetera. You know, uh, uh, those type of things uh, that, you know, they came out afterwards. Um, yeah. So, uh, let's move along. I want, talk to me about breakthrough news. Well, you know, what's that all about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I appreciate that. Um, you know, breakthrough news, it, more or less, it, it's a product of a lot of long experience organizing to, to go back to your early question. And to, I think speak to the point you just made about that pro-Ukraine rally, uh, you know, to some degree, one of the biggest challenges, I think, is the battle in the information sphere and the battle in the information environment um, on like pretty much all critical issues. And, you know, not even necessarily like telling people what's really going on, but like just giving people an alternative viewpoint to open their mind to maybe think that there's something else going on in the first place. Like, I think that sometimes is, is we have two challenges. I think there's some folks who like get the sense very keenly, like this is not working out. This is not happening. This is not a good look and are looking to go deeper and figure out like, what are these mechanics? What are these things? What are these issues? And then learning about other issues and, and, and building from there. But then a lot of people who are only kind of partially questioning whether or not there's a problem, you know, maybe this policy is wrong. Maybe this person is good, but maybe there's some subset of people who are relevant. I mean, like 60 some percent of people who are eligible to vote, which is a good percentage of people over 18, vote in the presidential election. So that means like there's, you know, basically a supermajority of people that have some feeling like, you know, perhaps this system has some level to be redeemed. When, like I said earlier, I think it's a system problem. I think it's a capitalism problem. I think the system is working more or less the way it's set up to work. So I think when you have a situation like that, uh, you know, you really have to have a robust platform and really not one, but a multiplicity of robust platforms that can start to push back and feed sort of both needs to really speak about critical issues in a way that's serious and in-depth and can help people understand and go deeper, but then also to just be able to challenge mainstream narratives on a lot of things um, in order to try to, you know, wake people up to the sort of scale and the depth and the breadth of the problem. Because, you know, obviously some things we talk about at Breakthrough are not really that controversial and people just want to know more about them. Some of them were saying substantive things, but maybe the most notable thing about it is it's sort of like, wow, I've never heard that before. So, you know, our perception is really to try to be a resource for, you know, people who I think share similar ideas, you know, with us about the world and what's going on in the world, or at least adjacent to us, so that in their conversations, their work, the people they know, you know, in those conversations we all have that, you know, especially when it's back and forth with somebody, eventually, like, you know, that's just the thing you say, and they don't necessarily, they might accept it, but you might not feel like they're moving them. And we, I really want our content and we really want our content to basically be rooted in the sort of like, okay, we don't agree on this. You don't want to necessarily listen to my view on it. We'll listen to this. Then let's talk again. Um, so that we're really a tool in advancing the conversation and trying to, you know, shift the narrative in that kind of way, not just sort of making media for media's sake. But um, we are, of course, making media across all the different, uh, you know, audio and, and video platforms and also on social media. So I think it's really just a result of the fact of having our own stories told so improperly. I mean, even everything we were just saying about the Iraq war period, like we remember it. So, you know, it's like in a way we have this whole memory. But I meet so many young people today who were like, you know, basically babies then. And, you know, not that they're against the, the movement against the Iraq war, but all of this is basically unknown to them. And it's not really narrated or laid out anywhere, quite frankly. Um, I mean, it is, but sort of in scattered places. So you think about how, you know, even big, important things like that, uh, you know, have never really gotten their just, you know, their, their own real robust historical and analytical treatment. It makes you think how important it is in the moment 
to really be producing things that can be lasting that that speak to the moment. So that's what we're trying to do at Breakthrough News. Um, I think we're doing at least an okay job. Uh, but I would say like, you know, we have to develop as many platforms as we can. And I often point out to people, you know, Bernie Sanders raised 400 some million dollars between those two campaigns in just, you know, four years. It does speak to the scale of what small dollar donations can do um, when a large multiplicity of people, I mean, I'm just kind of picking that example somewhat randomly, not to tie it directly to Bernie Sanders, but just to say, I mean, those are mainly like two to $27 donations. And I think it does speak to how I think we also need to cultivate, you know, amongst ourselves, amongst people who are questioning, especially the foreign policy narrative, that muscle of, of, of giving small amounts and how a lot of us doing that can help us build up a real pushback. Like I'm actually not seeding the ground, um, to the idea that we can't actually challenge successfully the mainstream media narrative, but it does take a lot of resources and it does take a lot to it. But I think that, you know, we, we have the human material to make it work. I think the sort of technical capabilities now are whatever their challenges still at a higher level than they've really ever been. Um, and so building out infrastructure around media, I think is so key. So that's why, you know, I was willing to make this, I'm not like a journalist or anything by trade or whatever, by training. Um, but you know, it was important based on, I think, his, just a historical experience of how media and the battle of ideas plays into like real life political movements. Yeah. You mentioned earlier at the beginning, um, about, you know, about how mainstream media is losing audience, right? Pretty much just like a certain, certain, um, uh, age group that, that continues to follow, uh, on mainstream media, right? But it was like the younger crowd that, you know, pretty much just follow it at all. Uh, and, and that's, you know, that, that came out. To my memory, I came out pretty much, you know, after the the, the Iraq invasion, and then just you started you know, with the, with the YouTube and everything. And you started seeing this proliferation of alternative media, right? And you started, you know, the people in vote tooling. There was, uh, see now there were uh, there were uh, was that Vice News, uh, the Real News Network, and stuff like that, right? So you started building more and more and more and more, right? So now it's like a whole, you know, you know, cocktail of different different news. Um, like there's a whole ecosystem of of alternative media out there, uh, grass from and whatnot, right? Uh, and you mentioned earlier in our conversation, you know, there's like a double-edged sword as well. Because because uh, a lot, you know, this also, also my opinion, it creates like this overload of information, you know? The overload of information, the saturation of information, right? And then just, it just puts people in a, in a state of paralysis because they don't know what to believe now, you know? Uh, and some of these alternative media just became uh, like arms, you know, uh, an arm of, of the political establishment, you know, they became the arm of the Democrat Party, for example. Um, you know, and some of these, some of these, like Vice, for example, just you know, in a particular conflicts, they pretty much laundry, laundry the the same uh, State Department narratives. They just put it in a chick way, you know, they just put it like in a hip in a hip way, you know. And because it's because it's a to media, right? And it's not coming from mainstream media; it's not coming from Fox, CNN. Uh, et cetera, right? You know, young people tend to believe that type of media, you know, because, you know, they're, they're against the establishment, so they tend to believe those media, but at the same time, what they're doing, they're, they're laundering the same narrative, they're recycling the same narrative, they're just putting in more, they're just packaging it more in a way to consume. Yeah, I mean, I think Vice, for sure, specifically, and, you know, Daily Beast is another one. I mean, there are definitely a lot of, I think, explicitly ideological outlets that are trying to be, like, cool, slick, you know, they have younger people working there, all those different pieces, like, you know, and, you know, to some degree, Netflix has been sort of a, a vector for some of that from a documentary perspective, although they've released some good stuff too. So I guess that's a mixed bag. But nonetheless, 
I think, yes. I think that the internet, that, yeah, it's like drinking from a fire hose. You know what I mean? Like doing a Google search. Well, like that Google mean that's determining what you're reading, you know? Um, and there's so much and like, how do you know, like what's for what, how much veracity is and how much there isn't, which is why I say foundationally, you know, like media literacy to me is actually, you know, built on a foundation of political education. Like if you don't read books, a lot of books, you're probably not going to be, have great media literacy because understanding any issue is really all about understanding the context of it, the history of it, the players of it. And of course, knowing all that, you can still have many different issues. But at the very least, then it gives you a basis and a context by which you can then filter out that information. And hopefully people will, you know, also read things they don't agree with. But at the very least, you can sort of have a worldview, take in different things and then accept or reject them and, you know, put them forward in a way that other people can understand. And then you can create political entities and organizations of people who think alike and then by group action make a difference. And I think that that's one thing that I we really have to front load. And I think think a lot about is this issue of political education and collective study, um, because I think, you know, oftentimes we're sort of driven towards dumbing ourselves down. I mean, one of my favorite books in a way uh, on a lot of different things is a book called um, Secrets of the Temple by William Grider about the Federal Reserve and the, the basically the way they're running the whole economy. And, you know, it's a straight line from Wall Street into the government to do whatever they want. But the thing that I like about the book beyond that, which is a great book is he talks a lot about the populist movement and the impact of the populist movement in the 1890s. And one of the things he says is, you know, now, and he's writing in the 1980s, quote unquote, monetary policy is considered to be something that like only experts can know about. And that if you don't have like the right PhD or whatever, you can't say anything about money or how it works or debt or banking. But he was like, in the 1890s, one of the things that was powerful about the populist movement is this was millions of just normal people you know, mainly farmers, small, small, poor farmers, black and white, trapped in a crazy web of debt who were, you know, erupting against these rising monopoly corporations. And even though many, some of them weren't literate, I mean, all of these different things you could think about, but there was an extraordinarily robust discourse around monetary policy. Like the populists were challenging the money power. They were directly challenging the organization of banking and industry and saying that it should definitely change. And millions of people, you know, and, and I think that and he, there's a whole culture to populism of mass political education. And part of how it started to grow as a movement was basically these like revivals. But instead of religion, they would be talking about politics and they would be talking specifically about how the Wall Street money men were the culprits behind the inability to make any money off of your very hard labor on these farms all across the South and all across the West. And so I say that just to say, I think we should also think in terms of our political organization, how we organize amongst ourselves and amongst our families. Like, how are we pushing ourselves to go deeper and read the context? Like, if you're interested in Iraq, like, what's your reading list to like start getting into Iraq? You know, and I think I just say all that as a lead up to say that I think that how do we combat this issue of the attempts to divert people through the media? is actually, I think, to double down on our ability to educate ourselves and our communities and those around us on the context of all of the critical important issues so that we don't just have to take the word of the New York Times or the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal or Fox News or MSNBC or whoever is claiming to be an expert. We can sort of take, take it in and then say, well, based on all these other things I know, does this sound basically right, basically wrong? And like, what else do I really need to know to understand that? And I think a lot of times the media sells itself as like, 
you know, get your subscription to the New York Times and you have like everything you need or get on Fox Nation and like you're just going to hear all these people. They're going to tell and they give you this sense that like you're getting all this information. But just like the Internet and a Google search, it's like drinking from a fire hose. They're saying a lot of things to you, but they're not ordering it really in a way that makes any sense. And if they are, it's usually in a really bad way. Uh, you know, so I say all that just to say this is the importance of independent alternative media that is willing to challenge the actual shibboleths. And maybe that should be the first rule of thumb is like, to what extent are you hearing things that don't conform to the mainstream narrative? And of course, like there's critical stuff in the mainstream media at this or that time. Some things aren't that controversial. So who knows where there may be overlap. But like overall, I think like if you feel like there's at least some cognitive dissonance between what you hear somewhere and the mainstream narrative, whether you agree with it or disagree with it, it might be good to at least know about it. So that way you can have some sense of like the broader spectrum. But yeah, Vice, all these places, terrible. I mean, it's like total counterinsurgency. Um, and just like they've been doing it for years, um, they're obviously doing it now. I mean, the, the Guardian, same way on a lot of these issues, The Intercept. And it's always the same people behind them, too. You know, there's always some shadowy billionaire, maybe not that shadowy, uh, with some political agenda, you know, like kind of left or right. That seems like a lot of these places that pop up that that really is kind of when you look at it, the nature of it. But again, you know, that's also the name of the game in an actual market. Yeah. And all these people you mentioned in the 1890s did all of that without social media all their organizing. Yeah. Zero social media. I mean, they didn't have telephones. I mean, they're riding horses. <laughs> hey, what you got there, man? We recently passed the uh, the 10th anniversary of the passing of Hugo Chavez. And um, there's, uh, Chavez governed you know, Venezuela from 1999 through 2013 until the time of his death. His presidency created huge transformations in Venezuela internal politics, social structure, and in the Latin American region. And he was a protagonist in the shifts occurring in international relations. Your uh, co-host, uh, Ronnie Akalik, did reporting from Venezuela and Cuba, another Latin American country that played a huge role in a pro uh, protagonist in the 20th century. In your view, do these countries continue to play important roles in shaping relations in South America and uh, elsewhere? Well, I think it's a great question, and I, I appreciate you raising it because, you know, in some ways, Chavez, it was almost like a shooting star. I mean, it was a long period of time, but like not that long. Like you think about Fidel living almost like half a century. Um, but I do think that those countries, Cuba and Venezuela specifically, are playing a huge role. I think the different Latin American nations are in different ways and the different gradations. But I think those are the two core countries, probably along with Nicaragua, that have the most aggressively sort of challenged this Monroe Doctrine idea that the U.S. should be determining the policies of Latin America and that that in and of itself makes you anti-American, that you can't have a relationship between Venezuela, Cuba, United States, where, you know, where they don't necessarily agree on everything, but they at least say, like, where can we mutually benefit each other? Like this idea that somehow that that, that can't work and that if you only can be obsequious in Latin America. And they, I think even now, you know, you can see just starting regionally, you know, how much that is the case just by looking at the elections in any Latin American country, every Latin American country, no matter where it is, no matter what the context, whoever the more conservative candidate is, and usually most of the liberal centrist candidates too, by the way, are always running against what is called known as Castro Chavismo. You know, it's just like, no matter the other side is Castro Chavismo. I was in Mexico um, in 2018 when AMLO was being elected and Anaya, who was the main sort of candidate against him, 
running with like a coalition of all the opposition parties, basically the whole establishment against AMLO. And in the Mexico City subway, which is a great, beautiful subway for anyone who gets a chance to go there, Anaya has these ads everywhere. And <laughs> it was like, you know, his name and the Mexican flag. And then next to it, it was like the Cuban flag and the Venezuelan flag. And it was like, you know who. So every election, Colombia, Ecuador, they're like, it's Castro Chavismo. So if it wasn't still shaping things in the region, I don't know why anyone would be running. I mean, even in the U.S. election in Florida, a huge issue in the 2020 election was, you know, Castro Chavismo. And in that time, they added Gustavo Petro from Colombia uh, as also like this boogeyman. And that this like if so somehow... I don't even know how these things are connected. I mean, you know, Biden didn't even, obviously does not support Cuba and Venezuela. I guess he does now support Petro, but he wasn't then. But somehow, like, they would become in control of America. I mean, it was so crazy, but it just shows, because I would always say Miami is really the capital of Latin America, which is, you know, so it just shows how over the sort of broader Latin American space, these countries are shaping things. And on a world scale, I think that's definitely true. And I think it's the easiest way to see it is to see, like, what a broad range of countries with differing ideologies have a huge amount of respect for these countries. I mean, obviously, Turkey is doing a lot with Venezuela. I mean, you see Cuba all around the world with the Cuban doctors, you know, whether we're talking Turkey, whether we're talking Russia, whether we're talking China, in Cuba's case, whether we're talking large chunks of Western Europe as well, whether we're talking Mexico, whether we're talking Colombia, Brazil, uh, whether we're talking basically the entire African continent that have very close relations with Cuba um, and, you know, budding relations and in many countries' cases, close relations with Venezuela you know, Singapore, Malaysia, Vietnam, Indonesia, like outside of America, these countries are actually highly respected, you know, kind of regardless, a lot of time, not always regardless, but in many cases, oftentimes when other countries have totally differing ideologies, which I think shows that they're bringing something to the table that's important. I think one, and maybe the most important is the emphasis on sovereignty. I think that even like US allies are now starting to question the just extreme aggressiveness of the U.S. unipolar attitude that is bad for not just other countries, but for people in the United States, which I think is something that a lot of people in the U.S. don't recognize. But, you know, basically, your, your gas is more expensive. The goods and the things that you're buying are more expensive. There are fewer jobs and you are making less money because the U.S. is not pursuing extraordinarily lucrative opportunities in Venezuela and Cuba and Iran and all these sanctioned countries, you know, Russia, all these other places. And, you know, they don't want to tell that to people. They want to say, oh, this is a great fight for freedom. Well, if you want to lower your, lower your gas prices, easily the best thing a Biden administration could do right now is drop all sanctions on Venezuela and Iran. And I guarantee you will be paying less for gas at the pump. But they want to, you know, construct this whole other secondary, secondary scenario. So I say that to say, I think that Cuba and Venezuela are able to shape the world by being such kind of unwavering pillars of their right to do what they want to do. And I think a lot of countries are like, yes, like we also want to do what we want to do. And we really feel we could still have great relations with the United States and that both sides could be benefiting economically. But like we just aren't going to do everything that they may or may not want us to do. But I also say, I don't know how many Americans even really care that much about that. I mean, the mainstream media often like brings into a huge way the these moral points many of which are fake and concocted, like around Cuba and Venezuela, but some can be true, right? Like, it does, that's not the issue. They bring this huge moral thing, and they say, you have to do this or do that, because if not, like, evil will triumph. But I wonder how many Americans, if it was like, look, your gas prices will drop like $2 if you were just ending all sanctions on oil producers. I think a lot of people, if you could vote on that, would be like, look, regardless of how I feel about Maduro or the Ayatollah, 
Like I'm trying to feed my family. So yeah, like I will vote to like lower my gas prices. So I think that's another element of the propaganda is confusing people about the real stakes of what's actually happening. Like I'm an admirer of Chavez and Venezuela and the Bolivarian revolution, but I don't actually think you need to be an admirer of them to support normalized relations with Venezuela. I think it's absolutely the best thing for like the average everyday working class American, just like trying to make it out here. And I, you know, you could also argue it's the best thing for a lot of U.S. businesses. I mean, I'm not advocating for them, but that's why a lot of them do lobby, uh, you know, against the blockade against Cuba, because they see it's like actually costing, you know, them. But I just say all that just to say, I think that is partially how they shape the world is by saying that there should be a different balance of power and that there should just be more equity in the relations between countries and that people should be looking for kind of like win-win and not like, I'm just going to tell you what to do, even if everybody loses in the big scheme of things. But yeah, in Latin America, I think for sure we can see here now, and this is the final thing I'll say about that, is you know that's the core center of gravity for the broader left tide in Latin America, which looks a lot of different ways. But you look at what happened is happening in Colombia now, which is huge um, on so many different ways. Like Cuba is the mediator for their peace process. And that would be a game changer for the people of Colombia to have peace and stability in order to like develop their country, which is extraordinarily rich and wealthy. You can look at the sort of broader issue of, uh, you know, how they're developing their resources, you know, how we're looking at developing the Caribbean, which is also a big topic in Latin America, that a lot of the problems that people are upset about. I mean, look, I'm I'm an advocate for immigrants. I always have been. Um, I always will be. And I think that people are, you know, demagoging, demagoging people who are coming here. But like, realistically, if you feel like you want to reduce immigration flows in America, the best possible thing is to actually have economic development in Latin America and around the world, but certainly there. And it's only really these leftward tied governments that are proposing setups for how the continent can work together that could actually lift people out of poverty in a real way um, and really be a game changer in terms of those places, not just being out migration places, but places where people can have prosperity on the in their own right. And I think that's an important aspect, uh, you know, also that I think shapes the influence of these countries around the world is they're really trying to emphasize like the possibility for economic development to be more equitable, more broad-based um, and significant, even in these global South countries, uh, not at the expense of anyone else, really. One of the programs that Chavez uh, enacted was uh, this uh, oil program, oil program in, in the Caribbean and in you know, Latin America, you reduce prices and whatnot. One of the beneficiary was Haiti uh, with this oil program, right? Uh, when uh, the uh, President Jovenel, uh, which was assassinated, uh, when he came to power, uh, he ended that program. He ended that program at the behest of, of U.S. pressure, right, which was benefiting the, the people in Haiti, that program, the oil. I forgot the name of the, 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 name of the program. Petro Caribe. Yeah, Petro Caribe, right. Um, but, you know, it was benefiting the people of Haiti, and Jovenel uh, eliminated that program. Shortly after, you started getting the protest. And, you know, and, and followed by his assassination, um, Haiti continues to be, uh, destabilized. Um, you recently did some push from Haiti. Can you talk a little bit about that? Also pretty much a country that, that gets, you know, no attention here in the U S. Yeah, no, I know it's, it's really amazing. And the attention that it does get is so skewed. I, I think the average American's knowledge of Haiti is unfortunately, if you only follow the mainstream media, you definitely are not fully on it. I will say since the assassination of Jovenel, there's been probably more better coverage, but it's still, even though it's more, it's not that much better, but at least it's like slightly improved, but still I would 
be wary if you're reading anything about Haiti in the mainstream media. I mean, obviously you should read it, but you got to dig deep in the history. Um, but yeah, Haiti, which now is in facing another potential occupation. I mean, Haiti's been occupied many times by Western powers, by the United States at the behest of it. You know, there's the 1915 to 1933 um, invasion, which was, you know, 100% on behalf of Citibank. And I will, okay, I'm trashing the New York Times, so I'll say something positive. I'll see, I'm equi- equitable here. Um, they did have the series on Haiti that revealed that, you know, and laid that out very well. Um, and also laid out how the coup against President Aristide in 2004 was basically at the behest of the uh, big, powerful interest, France and the United States, because they were upset that he was starting to create a conversation around reparations. So, you know, Haiti, I think the only way to really understand Haiti is like that Haiti is really being punished for being sort of successfully evicting the slave owners and the Western interest from the ruler, the leadership of the country. And, you know, pretty much ever since that moment, the freedom of Haiti has basically, and the, and the ability of Haiti to not be invaded or destabilized has essentially been predicated on any Haitian government just 100% towing the line um, of what, you know, America specifically wants Caribbean countries to be. And that basically is a site for low wage labor and sweatshops. I mean, that's, you know, the main industry in Haiti. It's the main industry in the Dominican Republic. It's the main industry and in pretty much all of them other than tourism. Maybe tourism is bigger than DR, but, you know, it's the same thing. All Caribbean countries, it's the same thing. They want, they're bringing people to the beaches. All of it, you know, is foreign currency and stuff being controlled mainly by the West. And they're bringing in these companies, giving them tariff-free access to the Caribbean Basin Initiative um, in order to have these sweatshops to make like t-shirts and underwear and actually during the pandemic PPE. And now increasingly, Haiti is trying to diversify into small electronic parts, including a lot of things that are going into, you know, smart weapons in the military industrial complex, which is kind of in the tip of the spear there. So, you know, the value of Haiti to the West, especially to the United States, is it's a very, very rich, exploitable thing. You can mine the things that are there. You can make all the agriculture, basically plantation agriculture. And other than that, just dump cheap American goods in the market, which they often do. Uh, and you can really you know, exploit the most valuable resource, the people of Haiti, um, to become a vast reserve of low-wage labor. So you know, billions and billions of dollars are being created out of Haiti. A tiny handful of oligarchs in Haiti who collaborate mainly with the United States and also France and other countries um, you know, get a little bit of that wealth and the rest of it goes, you know, mainly to America, really to some degree, France to some degree place in Latin America, but really the U S so the subjugation subjugation of Haiti is really all about looting Haiti and Haiti there. The, the way they loot Haiti is like a strategy of chaos. And that's the way you have to kind of understand Haiti. It deliberately, and you know, this has been cultivated by Western policy has a weak state. The way the U.S. has approached Haiti for 30 or 40 years now, really, um, has been to deliberately reduce the capacity of the state and increase the capacity of NGOs controlled from the U.S. That's why Haiti is called the Republic of NGOs. They want to reduce government capacity and increase the average Haitian's basic reliance on totally unaccountable international agencies. And like those are the explicit strategies of USAID, of you know, many of these organizations to funnel money away from state capacity. So that's, you know, one. Two, the oligarchs who run Haiti, who run Haiti in conjunction with the West, are deeply complicit. They are the ones who are funding these so-called gangs. And this has kind of always been the case in Haiti, um, where the the leadership that is endorsed by the West. So we talk, let's go post-Cold War here. You know, a guy named Papadoc, you may have heard of him, comes in to be the dictator of Haiti because he's anti-communist. 
And Papa Doc has something called the Tantan Makuts, which was like a, a, a militia that was, you know, really a death squad. A lot of them live in Miami, by the way. Yes. <laughs> yes. And so Papa Doc and his son, Baby Doc, they're overthrown and a new military-based government comes in, um, you know, and then they're briefly, Aristide comes in the first time. These military people coup him out, supported by the CIA. They set up another set of death squads where they're getting a lot of money from the richest people. Um, you know, Aristide, who is this popular president, he was a priest in the rural areas in the 80s. He came in, he's cooed out in 91. He comes back in the late 90s. He comes back even stronger in 2000. So you have the richest people, again, funding these paramilitaries, these gangs, these people to create violence, to create chaos, to assassinate political leaders who are doing, um, you know, who are pushing for more, you know, anti-poverty policies in Haiti, trying to lift up the Haitian people. And so here we are yet again. I mean, this is not just me saying it. There's an article in AP News last summer where one of the richest people in Haiti was openly saying how she was funding some of the gangs to fight the other gangs to have so that she could have the most leverage possible over these various warring factions. So, you know, the shutting down of certain roads and certain terminals and this, that, and the third, and these, these so-called gangs, it's all part of one oligarch mafia where the richest people are funneling their money down. They're using their control over key things. They're talking about the ports, the ports are all controlled by a handful of super rich people. We know who they are. And so just for years, people are bringing in guns and weapons and drugs and they have no idea. I mean, that's not credible. And so, you know, we can see that the whole thing is a deeply corrupt apparatus, but it's not random because it helps create, it helps prevent any sort of stable government from emerging. And it also helps prevent insurgent movements from coalescing. And when you look at the direction of the violence of these death squads, of the Haitian government often, of, let's say, the UN forces who were there in, in the early two, in the mid 2000s, you almost always see it being very concentrated against the neighborhoods that have offered the most popular resistance to these policies that come out in the biggest numbers in the big protest. And a lot of times those, not a lot of times, almost all the times, those are the sites of major massacres. You saw all the you, people maybe saw many journalists killed in Haiti towards the end of last year. There's a spate of murders of journalists. They were all journalists who were critically covering, uh, you know, totally unelected, totally non-constitutional, essentially de facto dictatorship of the so-called president, Dr. Ariel Henry right now. So like not a coincidence. So this strategy of chaos is a way of controlling Haiti, making sure that Haiti is imminently exploitable at all times, that an agenda can be pushed on them, whatever the agenda of the U.S., Canada, the so-called core group, U.S., Canada, the European countries, the U.N., the OAS, and a few Latin American countries like Brazil and Colombia and others who I think, you know, really need to reexamine their own policies in a big way on Haiti. You know, they just determine like what's going to happen in Haiti. And they are able to carry it out that easily because they have this long history and infrastructure of death squad politics to take out, you know, real critical popular opposition. They have, you know, the ultimate backing of the Western powers who, if they can't control it, will always find a way to invade Haiti and redirect the whole thing. And then they create a deeply enabling environment vis-a-vis -vis tariff free access to U.S. markets to turn it into a warm for sweatshop labor and, you know, many other different pieces. So, uh, you know, that's a little bit about Haiti. Uh, it's maybe more the history of Haiti. Uh, you know, I can say more about what's happening in Haiti right now, but that's basically the context. They're trying to invade Haiti again. They have a president who's a total puppet. He's backed by a huge sw swash of witch people. They're really controlling all the violence, and they're upset that a lot of people in Haiti are rising up and have been since 2018, you know, asking serious questions about what's going on in the government and demanding change. And they're trying to find a way to, to sidestep that and go back to the status quo of exploiting Haiti.
Eugene, we're coming close to the end, but I can't let you go without, uh, without, uh, without getting your thoughts on the, you know, where we at in Britmanship, uh, the crisis in, in Ukraine with China, uh, multipolarity, and where is the anti-war movement in America? Yeah, no, well, we're in a dangerous time. I mean, there's no doubt about that. I mean, it's obvious that the people who run the United States and both major parties are just like not interested in the survival of humanity. I mean, I, it just, and some people would say it like, it sounds wild to say that, but I mean, to, true. Be, to be so flippant about nuclear conflict just seems like amazing. And I mean, in addition to everything else that's happening in the earth. So obviously I think we've got a problem where there is a lack of, of understanding that even a limited nuclear conflict is going to actually destroy the world. I mean, like if people go Google that, you know, my father many years ago, I think it was 1952, he told me he was in Japan and he went to Hiroshima and it was, you know, built up somewhat, but it was still, you know, very messed up. And one of the things he told me always really stuck with him is some of the places he went that had been, you know, mainly destroyed, um, the shadows of people were burned into the walls of their homes because they had just been vaporized that quickly. Um, and then you don't think about the long, you know, devastating impact. But look, the International Committee for the Red Cross has actually done a very good report about this. They convened like hundreds of experts about like what would be the impact of a nuclear war. I encourage people to go out and look for that because there's like, there's no way that there is a nuclear, there is no winnable nuclear conflict. That's not a real thing. It's not a true thing. It's just totally made up. And the world is headed to, is in dangerous direction. You have nuclear brinkmanship with Russia, with China, with North Korea. Um, you know, you also have Israel with undeclared nuclear weapons, but we all know they have them basically, you know, holding that in reserve for, you know, attacking Iran in a certain scenario. Uh, you know, obviously India and Pakistan, which, you know, that is also related to some great power games. So you've got a lot of sort of tinderbox issues. And now almost all of the safeguards, the nuclear nonproliferation treaty, the new start treaty, the open skies treaty, all these things have been abrogated mainly by the United States. Um, although I know Russia just left new start, but it's like anyone who's trying to make that in any other context in the U.S. left every other agreement before that and made a mockery of them. The collapse of the Iran nuclear deal, which is, again, about Israel maintaining the, the right, the unilateral right to be able to nuclearly annihilate anyone in the region if they themselves feel threatened, like, you know, regardless of the actual facts on the ground. So I say that just to say, you know, this is a sign that building independent political movements outside the two major political parties is more important than than maybe ever before because we're in a situation where I I'd like to think we're we're stepping back from we're in a position to potentially step back from the brink. I do think that it is true that there's a greater conversation, you know, opening up around the war in Ukraine, the need the need to move to peace. Um, but there's basically no conversation around ramping up the confrontation with China. Um, you know, I I mean I don't know if people even fully really understand. I mean, you know, the US is basically threatening nuclear war with China for China doing something in, in, in China. I mean, Taiwan is a part of China. I mean, it, it just is a kind of an unbelievable thing. Uh, and then you have the ambassador, the U.S. ambassador to China, saying that China has to recognize that America is the leader of the Asia Pacific. You have also General, <laughs> yeah, General McDonnell saying that he, that he perceived he perceive the war with China in 2025. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, we're in America. They're in Asia. Like, I, I mean, how are we the leader of the Asia Pacific? Why is that something America even feels the need to aspire to? I mean, I can see why you would want to have relations with countries in Asia and the Pacific, 
But I mean, we're really going to spend tens of billions of dollars to tell the largest, most populous continent how the individual countries should live between one another down to the most minute detail. And if we don't agree with the, the borders or whatever, then we're just going to be like, we'll launch a nuclear war and destroy the earth. I mean, it really is like not logical. And how people can feel that's benefiting Americans, I think is difficult to say. But again, that's why we have to separate these issues. So I think we have to look at two, the two pieces together. Like obviously this issue of turning Russia and China into the number one enemy, it has, it has a purpose. And I think the same way the Soviet Union was turned into the number one enemy, um, you know, they're trying to find a way to justify the thing that is just not true, which is that this massive bloated imperial U.S. military industrial complex is necessary for American prosperity. Now, it certainly is necessary for the total supremacy of certain American brands, because the use of the military to keep other countries down certainly helps, you know, prevent the proliferation of potential challengers. Like, that's the big thing with China. But I think you have to ask yourself, are the corporate interests, you know, actually the ones that are, you know, in relationship to our, our prosperity? And I think ultimately it's, it's all a, a game designed to make people think that if you don't have 100 military bases or 190 or whatever it is on every country on earth, if you don't have enough nuclear weapons to annihilate the earth 18 times over, if you don't spend more money on the military in the US than every other country combined, like if you don't do these things that somehow you're going to die and that there's some existential strategy, when in fact the reverse is true. When I mean, you look at what just happened in East Palestine, I mean, you look at the fact that you know, you look at the infrastructure bill that was passed, which, you know, by the way, won't even do what Biden says. It's not going to fix all the bridges. But just before that, the stat was one in 15 bridges in America could collapse at any time. I mean, really, one in 15 bridges could collapse at any time. And somehow they're trying to tell us that it's more beneficial to maintain the seventh fleet in like Singapore or whatever. And then when you look at it, they had the guy doing all the contracts is corrupt. Uh, that was one thing that never really made it into the media. The fat Leonard scandal, the entire Pacific fleet was completely corrupt and every single deal for gas for and for food for everything was was you know not only vastly inflated but undoubtedly subpar and you've got like admirals who were supposed to be like oh admirals are supposed to respect them da, da, da. i mean giovanni you know you're from newport news you go on the norfolk naval station they're living in these giant mansions right next to their big golf course and these guys were selling out contracts for tickets to to japanese disneyland like, I mean, that's not, that doesn't even sound like a good sellout to me. So it just shows how this, how rotten and corrupt the system is. But they want you to think without that, somehow America's going down. Like fixing the bridges? No, you don't need bridges to be a strong country. But you do need to make sure that like North Korea or whatever can't, I don't know, have some power. I don't know. It's it just, everything is upside down. So we're in it. We're in this moment, but I think we have to look at it like that, that this is a new cold war moment that's happening, not by accident. It's not really about Ukraine. It's not really about Taiwan. It's about justifying this massive bloated imperial military industrial complex machine by identifying that with the prosperity of people living in the U S and people living around the world. And like, if we don't separate those two things, it'll be hard to win because that's why people kind of believe it because it feels like, oh yeah, like we really need this, you know, but like we actually don't really need this. I think we have to separate people between those two things and show how anti-imperial policies are, are better policies for the pocketbook of the average person in America. Without a doubt, you will benefit more from anti-imperial policies than imperial policies, but we know who will and uh, not benefit there and their powerful entrenched interests who are doing a lot to push us out there. So I'll, I'll say that 
um, you know, for sure. And I think that's really the task of an anti-war movement today is to become a more all-encompassing anti-imperialist movement and really show people how, like, on both sides, this is hurting people. Like, it is not good for people who are having their countries destroyed, being killed by the millions, and being forced to flee and creating a massive refugee crisis. And it's not good for people in the United States who, you know, I guess 160 million people in America who told the Census Bureau couple, about half a month ago in the Household Pulse survey that they're having at least some trouble making ends meet week to week. And how that isn't the biggest scandal, but the spy balloon is like that first thing has never been heard on any American television that the U.S. government is keeping statistics that almost all Americans, 160 million, almost every American who works is still struggling to make it and like having to piece it together this way and that way. You never hear about that. But all you heard about was the spy balloon for four straight days. I mean, we're we're out of whack here for sure. But, you know, it, how could you not? Because it's so illogical that if you had any realistic appreciation or presentation of it, all these politicians could never make it. If if they were saying even one quarter of the truth about what they're really doing, they would all be gone. So like they have to have the whole thing built on lies. The house of cards may be truer than we really know uh, in terms of how these people are acting and it's going down. So I think that's where we are. Very dangerous, right on the edge. Could really be a nuclear war, and I don't think we should downgrade that. Um, but I do think it is possible to convince people that this is the wrong direction, but only if we stop relying on the two major political parties. If we're looking to leadership from them, then, then it definitely will never happen because they are, they're just against it. So we have to look for other alternatives and make them viable in the political sphere. Well, I, uh, I think that's a good place for us to wrap it up today, fellas. Um, Eugene, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and uh, giving us your time and your expertise. Will you um, share with the folks where they can find your work and Breakthrough News? Yeah, absolutely. So you can find us in Breakthrough News at BreakthroughNews.org. BreakthroughNews.org is our main website and pretty much everything is on there. You can find us at social media at BT Newsroom, at BT Newsroom on all your different platforms. And we're at YouTube.com slash Breakthrough News. I'm, excuse me, only on Twitter, but you can find me at my name at Eugene per year. And I'm also there. Um, and yeah, I mean, you can certainly, you know, hear us all over the place and, and we are very grateful for everyone and gentlemen, thank you so much. I'm really honored to be here. Really great to have had the opportunity to meet you, Giovanni, when I was down there in San Antonio looking, um, uh, hopefully to be back there, you know, before too long, but thanks for what you guys are doing. You know, it's important to really have people out here trying to push against the mainstream. Absolutely. Anytime, you know, you're welcome anytime. Hopefully we can, you know, we can talk as well with, yeah. well, thank you for coming. All right, folks. Well, thank you for uh, joining us today on Fortress on a Hill. Take care. Money is tight these days for everyone, especially in the lingering shadow of COVID. Penny pinching to make it through the month often doesn't give people the funds to contribute to a creator they support. So we consider it the highest honor that folks help us fund the podcast in any dollar amount they're able. Patreons is the main place to do that, and for supporters who can donate $10 a month or more, they will be listed right here as an honorary producer, like these fine folks. Fahim's Everyone Dream, James O'Barr, James Higgins, Eric Phillips, Paul Appel, Julie Dupree, Thomas Benson, Janet Hansen, Daniel Fleming, Michael Karen, Ren Jacob, Rick Coffey, Scott Spaulding, Spooky Tooth, 
and the Status Quo podcast. However, if Patreon isn't your style, you can contribute directly through PayPal at paypal.me forward slash Fortress on a Hill. Or please check out our store on Spreadshirt for some great Fortress merch. We're on Twitter and Facebook.com at Fortress on a Hill. You can find our full collection of episodes at www.fortressonahill.com. Skepticism is one's best armor. Never forget it. We'll see you next time. my song I hope you'll pay attention I will not detain you long